Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and today we are lucky enough to have Tobin Ellis with us. And Tobin is a world-renowned bar and space consultant where he consults around bar design, cocktail development, training, bar opening services, and a number of other services. So his clients include Caesars, Ritz-Carlton, MGM, MGM uh, Mirage, Starbucks, and many others. So I'm pumped to have Tobin on the show. Uh, bars, at least for me, provide a break sometimes from the real world, and good bars definitely provide a nice energy. So I'm curious how Tobin thinks about bar design and development, and he also has developed a product for the bar industry that I'm curious to hear more about. So Tobin, thanks for coming on the show today. Absolutely, Dave. Pleasure to be here. Great. So let's uh, before we get into what you're doing now, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into uh, eventually bar design? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, um, I mean, the the short version is I started in college the dishwasher. Uh, in the college catering department and always wanted to bartend uh, after going to bars underage, <laughs> seeing how much fun the bartenders were having. I just knew it was something I wanted to do. So I just kind of climbed my way up that, I guess. I mean, I, in fact, I think uh, I think I applied to something like 30 bars in my college town of Oswego, New York, wow. and got rejected. Um, one of them actually laughed me out the door because <laughs> I had no experience. And I looked like I was about 12 when I was 18. <laughs> um, I've always looked a little young. Um, but I just kept at it and, um, kind of, you know, bar backed and then was a waiter and a trainer and then finally got some catering gigs and then got some real gigs. And, um, I went on to work for a couple of larger companies, uh, TGI Fridays way back, I mean, 20 years ago when, when they were one of the most probably revered companies yeah. for their systems and their training approach. And I opened a lot of restaurants for them around the country and traveled and, uh, just kept always wanting to, um, learn more, do more. Um, and ended up in bartending in D.C., Manhattan, and then out to Vegas to be the head bartender at Caesars Palace. And kind of just uh, I started getting asked quite a bit if I could help these businesses in other ways when they'd see things I'd do on my own. So I would do promotional flyers and create weird nights to bring guests in, and I would make up cocktails or drinks that just because I wanted people to have more choices and um did a pretty good job putting money in the register. So I kept getting tapped like, Hey, can you teach us how to do this? And realized I could charge people for it. And that's kind of how I sort of fell backwards into consulting. Huh, interesting. Yeah. And I, I've always had a, a fascination with bartending, but I never took the dive, but yes, it does look like a, a pretty, pretty fun job for the most, for the most part. <laughs> um, well, I mean, and, yeah. and you're right. And that one of the things that I found so appealing about it is, is like, it, it's the equalizer. It puts you, it's true social equality. As the bartender, you get to talk to every single human in that room, and every single person in that room typically is going to treat you with a lot of respect in a way that allows you to get to know them and have fun. Um, whereas if you're on the other side of the bar, those same people might not give you the time of day. So I, I was, that was really appealing to me to be able to just be able to strike up a conversation with almost literally anyone that walks in the room. So I had a couple of questions on the early years. How I've always wondered this as a bartender. How do you get to know how to make all the drinks? Um, not all, but you know, how do you even start that process? Well, I think there's two main processes bartenders use, and, and um, I think the first that most use 
is they completely bullshit. And <laughs> I don't know if I can say that on your podcast, but yep, I just did. You can fine. bleep it. But um, there, there's a lot of that. It's a weird industry where there's, there's not a lot of formal training like there is in the culinary arts, where there's vocabulary and uh, processes and mother sauces and things that everybody knows, and you can't really fake your, fake your way through it. Um, unfortunately, you can do that on the bar, at least you used to be able to. Um, and the other way, I think, is you just, you'd be a very curious person who's super, probably OCD and passionate as well. And that's probably the category I fell into where I actually wanted to learn how to make every single drink there was. Mm. Um, there was an episode of an old show that I don't know how many people listening to this will know called Cheers about a bar in Boston. And there was one episode where they brought in this corporate bartender and who knew every drink ever made. And, and the, the main, uh, the main character, Sam Malone's like, what about a serendipity? He's like, need her on the rocks, moonbeam. Uh, and he just throws, and those aren't real drinks, by the way. And he just knew them. And as much as that guy was sort of the, the antagonist, I looked at it like, yeah, like I, I don't want to be stumped. I want to always be able to make every drink. Yeah. So I just scoured bookstores for books and learned every recipe I could and talked to people and, studied and i mean i had recipes taped to the walls of my house wow. when i walked through to stop and quiz myself and all that kind of stuff it was i was a dork massive massive bar <laughs> what, dork what back then what was your favorite drink to make or if you had one um what? honestly it, it was fun to make long island iced teas because it allowed you to demonstrate a four bottle grab and do a four bottle pour oh wow basically if <laughs> if you can make a, a long island iced tea a, a very well crafted one and believe it or not there is a way to make a very well crafted long island iced tea um and do so extremely fast it was a very it, you were a commodity at that time in the late late 80s and early 90s um, and people still drink them but it's not a no one cares if you can make lits fast anymore no but we might need a video of that so no i'm just kidding that sounds pretty sad. I, don't, I don't know how you do that but... i don't know if we had video back then well i don't remember i think there's video now but no, you might um, need a charcoal drawing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh man! All right. So, one more question um, from back in your day. Do you, so, do you remember? And this is just I'm curious about tips. Do, do you remember a night where the the most tips you made at night? Um. Yeah, there's some pretty spectacular nights, but I actually what I remember more than that yeah. was how long it took before I ever made more than made a hundred dollars in a shift, and. I think that was a really important um, kind of path to have. I I worked almost five years in bartending and didn't break $100 in tips. I worked in a college town in the late 80s and early 90s, a state school, where everybody was broke. We were couch surfing for coins. If you had a $20 bill, I mean, you were a god. (laughs) And I worked at a bar that drinks were $1.95 called the Caddyshack. And I can't tell you how many times people picked that nickel up and put it back in their pocket when they gave us two bucks for a drink. Um, so the first time I made a hundred bucks, I just was beside myself. And that was probably really well that I was bred that way because fast forward about 15 years and I'm working at one of the busiest and best nightclubs in Las Vegas. And I'm working with a staff of people that have their first bartending job and they're pulling down 500 bucks a night. And after about six months, we start making on a Thursday night starts dropping to 300 bucks and they're complaining. Mm. And you know, it's just the perspective. I looked at it like, do you realize you just made more money in one night with almost no experience or qualifications than most Americans make in a week? <laughs> and you're complaining. Like, this is one of the best jobs, if not the best job in the world. And I just always, I guess, had respect for the work ethic and the 
the rewards that came with it. I never took it for granted. I never felt entitled. So, and for your years at TGI Fridays, was there one or two key key takeaways that you know cause you helped them open a lot of restaurants and bars? Um, you know, what was their process and um, um, oh man. I'm going to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, there were a ton. (laughs) I will say, I will put it on record. Probably the only reason I have a successful consulting business is because of what I learned at TGI Fridays. And there are, I can, off the top of my head, think of a half a dozen men and women around the world who are leading experts um, and authorities in the cocktail community today that cut their teeth at TGI Fridays as well. They figured out how to systemize and scale vibe, energy, atmosphere, drinks, hospitality, training, construction, lighting, design, all of it, 50 or 60 years before anyone ever thought of it, and yet somehow not lose that X factor of being the cool spot. And I know to some people listening that are younger, that's like, dude, you're old. Like, Fridays is lame. (laughs) I know. It's not necessarily what it was, but there was a day when TGI Fridays was the busiest bar in any city in America. So... They were. They just. They really knew what they were doing, and they took a lot of um, pride and passion. Pride in the passion that their people had to always take this insanely detailed approach to things, and yet they kept it fun and weird and and relevant to the to the times mm-hmm. they were in. Interesting. And uh, bartending and or leading bars out in Vegas <clears throat> was the clientele a lot pickier out there as far as their drinks. <laughs> <laughs> If you, you haven't been to Vegas, have you? Um, I love Vegas, but let's be honest. This is the vodka and Red Bull capital of the world, and it's always going to be. This is where people come to blow a bunch of money and you know be crazy and drink yard plastic margaritas made with high fructose corn syrup that's neon green. I mean, we, we, we've done a lot for cocktail culture and 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 um and obviously for the culinary world, but. You know, this is where the world, and especially um, a lot of Americans, come just to kind of cut loose. And it's not very, um, it's not a place you go because you have discern- discerning taste in cocktails <laughs> as much as you would go to Manhattan or London or um, Sydney or even Austin or Portland, etc. Um, so, no, people are not pickier here. Um, they just drink a hell of a lot more. <laughs> Vegas does volume like no other city on earth, and when people come here in my industry and see it, they're blown away. Like, I mean, the numbers that we do are just, they're hard to wrap your head around sometimes. Really? Huh? Yeah. You, you probably, do you remember those numbers or do you have any, uh, a tale? You yeah. I mean, it's new year's Eve, new year's Eve every night here. Well, the numbers are, aren't fair market to market because okay. we charge so much more. But as an example, you'll hear bartenders talk about, um, even just a few years ago, you know, Hey man, I had a $2,500 ring last night or I had a $3,500 ring. And you'll even hear them saying in, in major markets where the drinks are twice as expensive, you know, that they have these six, seven, eight thousand dollar rings. And out here you'll hear about eight, ten thousand dollar rings wow. um often. Huh. And I mean I remember I had a I had a thirty two thousand dollar ring one night now. Granted, what? I was a service bartender to well, I was a service bartender at a nightclub and we have bottle service. So every time I grab a bottle of vodka and put it up on the bar top for a waitress to deliver, that's six hundred dollars. Oh. So it's not like real bartending, believe me. But the point is, is that the volume of alcohol that we sell and serve um, seven nights a week is just—it's—it's it's just astounding, and the number of places that do that. I mean, we've got uh, somewhere between on a bad year between 25 million and 50 million on a good year tourists coming into town so we've got a half a million to a million people a week that are here and 
the majority of them are going to go out and drink. Oh yeah. All right. Well, so let's talk about what you what you do now. And uh, I think it's appropriate because you know we're in Madison, Wisconsin. So of course, Wisconsin is a uh, home for the highest you know number of bars per capita. I think in I think we're have a lot of the drunkest cities. So I think this is a, a of course a lot of those bars are not very they're not designed by you. Let's just say <laughs> they're not very nice. You know but... what? You know what? No, I mean, hey, I I I've been to, I've been to Wisconsin. Um, I love Wisconsin. I mean, I I work very closely, which I'm sure we'll talk about with a company based in Milwaukee, and um, I've been to Chippewa Falls. Um, oh, wow. I, I know Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, cool. I, I love my cheese curds. <laughs> I love my squeaky cheese curds. <laughs> that's right. They have me squeaky. All right. So how so. You kind of started how you got into the business. You know, you have this deep background in bartending and opening up bars, and then some people started asking you for help. Like, what was kind of your first project that you worked on, and who was that for? Um, you know, it's funny because it, when I, I saw this question, and I was thinking back to who I considered my first client, also one of my early mentors. And I had made a post on Facebook about this, and he, he's a friend on Facebook, and he kind of laughed and made a comment like, first client, okay, if you say so, because <laughs> he viewed me as an employee. And I think that speaks to sort of the the culture of the accidental entrepreneur or the outlier sort of, um, you know, with a Jobsian view of things, which I think I have, which is you know, Steve Jobs had this reality distortion field where he sort of bent reality around him in the things he did. And I think um, in a less, far less significant way, I think that's how I've always been, where I didn't see things the way other people did for the good and the bad. So um, I think my first client was a place in Syracuse. My first real, full, big client that I did something I was super proud of, I think, was a place called The Stoop in Syracuse, New York. But um, I, was a, I, was an, I was a paid employee, um, but I never looked at it like that. I, looked, I had a contract. Like a, a separate from an employment contract, I had a contract oh. with him, and I looked at it like this is a consulting job because I knew that it wasn't going to be a place I was probably going to be at very long, and I took it on as as that style. But I was already consulting for about two or three years. I honestly don't remember the first job because my early work was a lot of weird little, very poorly paid. I mean, I got paid. I've been paid several times in my first year for like I got comp dinner and a. You know, they reimbursed my my gas money to come out there. Um, But uh, I did weird things. Like, I didn't necessarily always do menu development. I did little private special bartending events and um, shows and demonstrations. And that's kind of how it started. I was a competitive bartender. And then that gave me the platform to start explaining how I was able to perform in those shows and events and competitions because of the systems and the training and the theories that I had. And that sort of parlayed into the consulting. But yeah, I'm on a little second floor uh, beer and wine spot in Armory Square, Syracuse in the late 90s that I was brought in to uh, bring in a full liquor program with cocktails and spirits. And we were and we were doing some like solid classic cocktails with a few of our own bespoke cocktails or craft cocktails. Um, you know, a couple years before the first major speakeasies of New York even opened up. Huh. Um, now, by no means were we doing it nearly as well as any of those bars. I have the utmost respect for Sasha Petrescu and Milk and Honey in these places. But um, but we were going down that same road without any guidance. So that was probably my first, what I consider to be one of my first big projects. Interesting. And when did you start getting into um, like bar design as well? Because that seems like a, a big jump or a, 
I don't. Maybe it's not. Maybe it made it all makes. Maybe you need a, the integrated process for it to all make sense. Well, and and there's bingo. I mean, and that's what I sort of stumbled on blindly as time went on. Is you know, first I was designing drinks, and then the bartenders that I designed the drinks for couldn't make them or didn't want to make them, so they wouldn't work. So then I realized I had to train the bartenders. But then the bartenders could make the drinks, but the managers wouldn't support it or buy the ingredients or change the ingredients. So then I realized I had to help them buy the ingredients and trade the managers. And it just kept mushrooming into this gigantic, you know, view from 30,000 feet that, gosh, I've got to do everything if I want just the specifics of that one little drink to work right. So um, I kind of sort of pretty much just kind of begged every job, like, please let me design your bar because... Anyone listening to this has ever stepped foot behind a bar and bartended for more than four hours knows it's an exercise in pain and futility and inefficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the first bar I actually ever designed um, for a client was in 2003, and it was in, I had to go all the way to Nepal, Kathmandu, Nepal, to do it. No and way. The, oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Uh, and halfway through the job, uh, I had to, um, I had to, for the only time in my 27-year career, invoke the uh, force majeure clause of every contract um, where it says uh, in case of acts of war, etc., war actually broke out in Nepal. The Maoists uh, rebelled against the government and were pulling cops out of their cars and beating them to death. So oh, I, uh, I had to not go back there. Uh, so I never got to build that bar, but that's where I started. And then um, I just kept getting little small breaks, you know, doing jobs in like Poughkeepsie, New York and Winston-Salem, North Carolina and, I mean, the little tiny towns I have consulted in are as many as the major markets and the big, huge names. Mm. And, you know, as time went on, larger and larger companies kind of got on their radar and they started calling me in. So um, I think the first big, giant design job was in actually not that long ago, 2007, uh, at the Greenbrier Resort, uh, 237-year-old resort in North or in uh, West Virginia. Uh, five diamond, five stars, and we redesigned nine nine outlets, um, two three from the ground up, and I designed all of the bar equipment for those, and um, wow. that was a pretty pretty big job. Yeah, that's that sounds huge. And and to that point, can you? I'm really curious, kind of how you think, because like if somebody's like, hey, can you like design a bar and do the drink development? Like I have no idea where to start, and it'd be a disaster. But I'd call you, I guess. Um, but so how do you like for that project, or you can take a fake project or another project like from the how, how do you think through the whole process when someone's like hey you know we want you to redesign our bars like how do you even know where to begin and because uh, there's a lot of moving parts it seems like yeah I mean I, I made a lot of mistakes and you learn the hard way and I think as in any industry if you really want to get past the stigma of being a consultant and and and, and if the fair stigma I should say you need to um, or I, I always felt like it was important to take a sort of a partner approach. Like, I'm not going to take this on as, well, I don't care. It doesn't matter if they succeed or not. I just want my consulting fee. I always looked at it like, I can't get the next job if I don't hit it out of the park with this job. I'm going to treat this money and this project like it was my own and be that dogged about it. And um, so you learn things like what's probably most important is actually qualifying the clients and taking the right jobs. And and I made that mistake a lot where I took jobs. There was no way these humans were going to succeed in business, no matter what they did. Mm. They just weren't they, they just weren't equipped for it or prepared to do it. But I was always like, but, but I can do this, you know, the the bulldozer approach or the you know the Don Quixote fighting windmill approach of, you know, I'm 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 smart enough and I'm talented enough and I'll work hard enough and and I think um, that 
that is the, probably where it starts now is having really long conversations, going out to the market, meeting the, the partners of the owners, finding out where they are, what their um, not just what their business plan is, but what are they like as people? What are their values? Um, how are they as visionaries or leaders? How will they be able to execute this plan? And and not just to decide whether or not to take them on as a client, which is actually a big part of it, but also what to present to them. You know, like everyone calls me and says, we want to have the best cocktails or the coolest bar or whatever in blah, blah, blah city. And yet I pick this up, actually ripped it off from the guy that designed the uh, Jawbone earpiece, a very famous industrial designer who did a lot of Apple's packaging who got the same question, same comment. Everyone that calls him says, we want to be the next Apple. And he'd always turn back and say, do you have the stones to be Apple? Hmm. Do you know what it takes? And and most people that are getting into this, my industry, they really have no idea of what they don't know. They don't know what it takes to be top of market and how incredibly difficult it is, how hard the people that are top of, mar- top of market work seven days a week, 18 hours hmm. a day for years. Hmm to to be that good so um so that's actually believe it or not that's the that's the unsexy answer um as far as once you get into the design process um i'd like to say that there's all these great metrics that i look at etc but the reality again is that most of the time i'm called in unfortunately after a lot of decisions have been made so really it's reacting um to the constraints that i'm given and figuring out how to try to get them the result they want within those constraints whether it be budget, the floors are already poured, uh, the GM's been hired, um, they've already promoted the date of the opening and they're locked into it, even though there's no way they're going to finish the build-out in time. All those kinds of criteria or parameters absolutely affect the decisions I can recommend because I know that the pipeline to get you that custom fab equipment you want is 14 weeks, but you say you need to open in nine. Well, then you can't have that back bar you know, blast freezer that you want as part of your program to serve your molecular cocktail program. And owners don't know all that. They don't get that. They don't, oh, I just want to do this and this, just get it done. And, it, and so we have to kind of problem solve backwards um, a lot of the time, uh, I'd say, is, is how the process really works. No, that makes sense. And uh, no, I like your, and I like the answer about uh, being very discerning. That's a, uh, wasn't expecting that, but I like it. And because uh, uh, yeah, my I'm, job is more of my job is to tell, tell to try to talk to a lot of opening bars than it is to help hmm. them do it. Hmm. It's it's a crazy business with an incredible failure rate um, and, a, and a ton of unqualified people that think it would be cool to open a bar or how hard can it be or something like that or that they're going to make a bunch of money. You don't get into the bar business to make money. You get into the bar business because you have to, because you have no other choice, because it's in your blood and you want to do it, and into hospitality. And the people that that get that are usually the ones that are the most successful, and the ones that don't are the ones that have the most frustration and usually lose their shirt. Do Do you ever become a partners in any of these bars, or do you want to build your own? And I mean, you wouldn't operate them necessarily, but uh, yeah. you know, I've I've gone down that road a few times, and and um, I guess. At a very um, early age, I realized that um, I did a lot of reading and realized that um, passive income um, was really the, the ticket to freedom in, in a capitalist society where yeah. you can kind of have the life you want when you want it. And um, I always thought it was crazy that people were going to 
work their whole adult lives when they're healthy and then wait till their their health starts failing to retire to one day be happy. Yeah. I decided I was going to start being happy as a kid and as a teenager and do something I loved from the get-go no matter what. So um, the problem with taking a piece of other people's businesses is that the only way that you can protect that and guarantee that it delivers is that you've got to always be working and involved. I don't want to be 60 years old or I don't even want to be 47 and be one of these guys or one of these women that's working seven days a week, 18 hours a day. Uh, and, and just, and I've done that. I mean, I did it for years, you know, and I, I was a workaholic and I worked, I think I went three years with like one week of vacation and didn't took work all weekends, seven days a week. And I was miserable. So, um, yeah, I don't really usually um, get involved in a long-term relationship as a consultant with, uh, on that aspect. Um, but I'm open to it and I have a lot of friends that have done it with great success, but I am one of the rare bartender turned consultants or even bartenders that my end game is not to own a bar. Um, it's not that I never would, but that's not been the master plan. I'm, I'm kind of working the master plan and it doesn't involve uh, owning a, any part of a bar. Well, it frees you up to you to help other people at their bars. If you had your own bar, plus there's a lot of conflict of interest there. It's like, well, how much time are you spending with your clients if you're really caring about your own bar? So, no, I think that makes uh, I think that makes sense. Um, so I, I'm curious when you, and maybe you don't do this, but when you walk into a bar, do you know, how do you, how do you look at a bar differently? You think than the, the rest of us, are you, are you looking at, uh, yeah. What do you look at? Maybe nothing, but, <laughs> um, well, I think after this long, almost three decades, I try to turn that off and I'm pretty good at it so that I can walk into a bar the same way you do and enjoy it yeah. as it's meant to be enjoyed. And, um, but, um, you know, my, my geek radar still goes off, both for the good and the bad. Um, and, and I think simultaneously, I'm a human being, so I react to positive and negative experiences, as most humans would. Um, but then I, at the exact same time, my brain is splintering off and sort of being the uh, the third-party observer that's looking up from a distance and just empirically, or just looking at it holistically and thinking, that's interesting. I wonder why that's happening. What's causing that? Or that's super cool. How did they do that? How can I hmm. learn that and incorporate that into my work? Um, and I'm not going to lie. I mean, I've walked into a, many a bar with a tape measure and, you know, discreetly pulled it out of my pocket and measured things and looked at their design and like, this works, this doesn't, and made my notes <laughs> because, um, you know, we don't have a formal, there's, there's nowhere that I know of that you can go. There isn't a book. There isn't a, a website. There isn't a, a seminar. There's, I mean, a, a series of ongoing seminars where you can go or a school and learn how to design a bar. And so all this information has been something I've had to learn just picking up scraps and, you know, work, figuring it out, doing it, making mistakes, practicing, studying, recording, analyzing. Um, and, and that's so, yeah, I, I mean, I can walk into a bar and I can see a ton of things that the average person doesn't see. I look for the first reflected surface of sound waves where they're going to bounce off of, and I know whether or not that place is going to have good acoustics. Um, I look for, and I can see um, just flow patterns of staff versus traffic and where the pinch points are and how I would, you know, of course I'm redesigning spaces in my head all the time and figuring out all the little tweaks I would make. Um, And to a lesser degree, you know, pretty much all bartenders that are passionate about cocktails, for example, you know, we can walk into a bar, we can look at the back bar and know whether or not you should order a cocktail at this bar or not. And that's something I didn't realize that I learned through like friends and family that a lot, most people cannot do. They, they see a menu that has cocktails that sound good 
and they want to order them, and it, and the rest of us are sitting there going like, "No, don't order a cocktail here. Get a beer," because you you don't accidentally build a bar that has all of the benchmarks of a great cocktail bar. You know, it's it's on purpose. And from the pour spouts that you may or may not use, or the tools, to the brands you carry, to the way your bartenders touch their tools and do things, you can close your eyes and hear the sound of a good shake. So it's kind of, yeah, I think we, we employ a lot of our senses as consultants and bartenders and see things and hear things that perhaps the average person walking in a bar doesn't. That's pretty interesting. You should write a blog post on all the subtle things, what makes it good. Because <laughs> I was going to say, is there one thing that really for us amateurs that we could really see and uh, be able to tell? Is it, it, or is it just a lot of the little nuances that you have to be able to see? I think the easiest thing, yeah, there's the easiest one. If you walk into a bar, look at the bottles on the back bar. And this sounds weird, but if you recognize most of those bottles, you probably can't get a good cocktail there. <laughs> okay. If you see 30 flavored vodkas, you're probably not <laughs> getting a life-changing Negroni or an authentic Sazerac or a old-fashioned or whatever else. Um, and, and look look like you would in a kitchen. You know, What do you see? Do you see lots of fresh ingredients? Do you see a lot of tools that are on the bar, around the bar to make fresh ingredients? Or do you see a lot of things in packages? Like just the same way you, you, you go to a grocery store. Did this bar buy all of their ingredients in the produce section or in the freezer section? That's probably the quickest and easiest way, not just for bars, but for restaurants um, to be able to tell. Unfortunately, with restaurants, you, you don't know what they're what's happening in the back of house, but that's the good news on a bar. Mm-hmm. It's in the front of house usually. You can see what they're making your drinks with. Um, here's another easy one. Um, and there's a few people that are going to hate me for saying this, but when you walk into a cocktail bar, if the if the cocktail glasses or the quote-unquote martini glasses are those triangular-shaped bathtubs that are like 14 ounces, you're probably getting a pretty pretty mediocre, if not <laughs> horrific drink. Look for a, a cocktail coupe, you know, the, the Marie Antoinette sort of champagne rounded coupes. That's usually a, a, an indicator that they care about their beverage program a little bit. Not always, but oftentimes. Oh, that's awesome. No, I can't wait to go out again. <laughs> so I gotta, I'm going to use this. Yeah. I'll, I'll impress, the, impress my friends. Um, so I'm curious to, you know, you've done a lot of bar design and drink development, and you, but now you're building more equipment and you have the, the Perlick station. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how do you come up with the idea and how is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, better? yeah, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, that's actually where I spend the majority of my time now is in um, industrial equipment design and or operational design, which is the bar design piece. Um, and um, the Perlick um, relationship kind of is, um, I was placing their equipment. Their Perlick is one of, is a hundred year old, well, hundred year next year, 99 year old American uh, equipment manufacturer one of the oldest uh, family-owned right at, right out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I was using their equipment for 10 years, uh, yeah, almost 10 years before we ever had a phone call together um, when I designed bars because I felt it was some of the best equipment out there. And I really, I liked it. Um, there's only about five manufacturers or six big ones. And they were, you know, they were big and reputable and they had great service, et cetera. And, um, so, um I had always felt, and I think every bartender can um, give me an amen, hallelujah, that bars were always designed by people that had no idea how to make drinks, that had never stepped a foot behind a bar. And they are, there's no ergonomics, they're inefficient, they're pain, literally painful to work behind. Uh, bartenders have like sores, like the back of your knees can hurt, your lower back, your elbow, all these places that shouldn't hurt, 
because you have to do all this crazy stretching and moving and banging against equipment just to make a few drinks. So I was always trying to MacGyver when I design bars and repurpose kitchen equipment and change layouts to be, make them better for bartenders because that's how you make more money if you own a bar. You make It's a factory, and you make a more efficient assembly line. I mean, that's just sort of like a duh to me, but yet it's one of the least looked at aspects of the design build process and even the bar owning process. No one ever thinks twice. They, they order it once. They have some person who's never bartended do the layouts and they buy it and they install it and then it's every bartender hates it. So I was always trying to design better equipment, but the equipment itself just didn't do the job. So um, yeah, I had a I got a call from Perlick and they wanted me to go out and speak about how great their equipment was. And I think as a small business owner, um, after you've struggled long enough and barely paid your bills long enough, you realize there's those those sort of tipping point moments where you need to decide if you just want to kind of go along or you really want to try to go for the golden ring. And, and I did. And I, I told them I couldn't speak on behalf of their company to say how great their equipment was for bartenders because it wasn't, even though it was the best equipment I could find, nobody was designing equipment that bartenders loved. And I expected the phone to, you know, to hear a dial tone. <laughs> and instead, instead they said, do you want to fly out here and talk to us about it? I said, yeah. So we talked and it turns out they were already thinking about this for a long time, but they just really didn't hadn't settled on what direction to take it. So I just sort of spit the hot fiery truth for longer than any of them probably cared for and <laughs> showed them some of my plans and designs. And then we got to work and we spent two, about two years going over wow. designs and prototypes and finally came out with it. And um, we launched it last February at a big equipment show. And I think uh, last I asked them, I think we're 400% over projections for sales. Oh um, my goodness. Bartenders are freaking out. They're calling it bartender porn, and um, <laughs> it's doing really well. And um, I, that makes me super happy because yeah. I didn't know. Like, did I just design something that I think is efficient and ergonomic, or is, are a lot of people going to be happy about this? And so far, um, it seems like we've we've kind of done a decent job of um, hitting those pain points and removing them from working behind a bar from an equipment standpoint, anyway. Mm. Interesting. You you never know where life's going to take you <laughs> when you first started. You really, out. really don't. Yeah, but um, yeah, but so and anyway, and people often are asking me to like, what do you actually design? What do you mean equipment? So I design the big, big stuff that bartenders stand behind that holds the ice and the bottles, and the sinks, and the refrigeration and all that to, to their station to make all their cocktails. That's what I've come out with, and it's I can't even use my own name without vomiting, but it's it's it has my name on it. It's called the no way. my name. Yeah, Tobin, you know, blah, 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 signature cocktail station by Perlick. Oh, um, wow. So they branded it with me. So, yeah, so it's oh, a pretty, goodness. pretty. Um, That's a big deal. I mean, that, that, yeah. you're going to be at the yeah. tip of every bartender's uh, ton. When you go, when you walk in, they're like, wait, you're Tobin else. <laughs> oh, God, no, I That's hope not. That's going to be awesome. No, yes, no, no. Be no awesome. <laughs> I, I, I've always, I've always wanted to have more of a profile, kind of like uh, Michael Crichton. Like, you know, when it, when yeah. it matters, everyone yeah. knows the name, but he can still have a life and be, and fly under the radar and that's that's i'm much more that's much more my speed so i actually fought the name i didn't want them to put my name on it but um i lost that battle <laughs> i wanted to call it quantum which they didn't like so nice all right well we're getting towards the end of the podcast unfortunately um i was curious i, I think uh is starbucks one of your current clients right now or was yeah okay. yep um yep i spent about uh, a little over a year year and a half working with starbucks um and and I'm I'm uh, 
NDA'd up pretty thoroughly yeah, that there's not enough. a lot I can talk about, fair but um, <laughs> I can I can speak in generalities that I spent a lot of time with their in their um, incubation lab and their innovation departments um, working on a lot of two basic things. I designed equipment or gave them design ideas for equipment um, specific to every Starbucks in the world. I helped them work on um, future prototype store designs and emerging concepts um, that will be in. They've already announced that it will be in like Shanghai and New York and Paris and etc. and all over. And um, and then I spent a, a long time working on some very interesting hospitality training that I think is a little new that I've that actually applies to other Fortune 100 and 500 companies that I've now started to talk with um, that deals with the neuroscience of service and hospitality and things like service nurture loops and cognitive dissonance and et cetera and, and how to apply these things in a high volume environment and make them work and culturize and scale them. So, um, mm. yeah, it's pretty That's fun stuff. Can you give a, I know we're near the end, but can you give an example of, uh, you know, some of the things that you're working on, you know, like around cognitive, cognitive dissonance, dissonance or something else? Yeah. Um, we spend a lot of time. So studying about things that are, um, dogma in the hospitality industry that, that maybe are should be reviewed like there's a, a belief that hospitality is this gene that you're born with you're not and while it's true in everything that there's certain people that are um, more predispositioned to excel in certain areas you absolutely can train hospitality we learned that um, and one of the ways you do that is by teaching people giving them the tools to understand why they do or don't do the things they do because there is some massive cognitive dissonance that happens um, in hospitality where, you know, isn't it funny when you, when you walk into a bar or restaurant, you're so hypercritical of things like, I can't believe the bar's messy, or oh, that person rolled their eyes at me, or this is so rude, or I waited so long. And yet when you do it, it's okay. <laughs> it's fine. You know, it's that idea of the values that you hold are dissonant from what you observe that you actually also support or you're against, et cetera. And, and that your brain tells you all these lies and stories to make you feel better about yourself. We kind of uncover that, and, and we talk about, like, how is it okay for you to be upset at, at someone else giving those subtle cues, just that little look. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. that, like, I'm annoyed with you look. Why is it okay? Why is it wrong for them to do it? But you had a good excuse while you did it. And that starts to start the, that starts the conversation of how to combat that and how to, show, um, how to tap into empathy so we teach them things like the right super, right super marginal gyrus is a portion of the brain that controls the ability to have empathy. And we've learned through the plasticity model that you can actually grow that part of the brain. You can enhance its neuroplasticity to the point that you, can, you actually can learn to be more empathetic. And when people hear that and they understand how it works, then they go, Oh, my employees aren't a lost cause. I can actually invest <laughs> in this and I can, you know, and, and, and you can flip the culture of an entire bar, restaurant, or even a company over time if you just give them the tools, the resources, and the inspiration to want to change. Um, and that's one of the things that I spent a lot of time at Starbucks with was how do we take a company that was, in essence, and in, in reality, was literally a retail company. I mean, Starbucks started with that store down in Pike Market was selling coffee beans, it wasn't a coffee shop. They've learned hospitality along the way, but they have a very retail mentality in a lot of ways. And so as one of their only consultants in the hospitality field for a long period of time, I felt it was sort of important to um, try to give them the tools to just be better at actual hospitality 
whether or not it had to do with a cup of coffee or not. And and that was, you know, a little divergent from a lot of their um, existing um, sort of methods and whatnot. But it, it definitely fell within their corporate culture of um, it's a great company that actually really cares at the highest levels. That's what I experienced anyway. Mm. And they are innovative and they want to be great at hospitality and everything else. Um and really build communities and, and et cetera. So I just wanted to come in and try to help them do that in a very tactile, spe- job-specific way. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I think that's a good place to end the podcast. I love how your your career has uh, transformed and changed over the years. That's a you should write a book someday. <laughs> not yet. Been a wild not ride. Done yet. Not done yet. So, but yes, I, bet you I want to write stories. science fiction, though. You well, know, I mean. You you could write both. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think maybe some of my, maybe maybe some of my belief in my career is science fiction. Who knows? <laughs> That's right. That's right. But between the stories and the just how you yeah what you're doing now is really interesting. That's I would not have expected that if I had talked to you 20 years ago. Um, but uh, you know, I definitely uh, totally appreciate your time and your thoughts, and great to hear about your experience and what you're doing now. So I definitely enjoyed it. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to to share, you know, this these these uh this little journey I've had, and um, hopefully it you know inspires one person that listens or whatever. It gives them some uh, reassurance or hope that their outlier divergent path um, and their own attempts to kind of carve out their own future in the world isn't isn't necessarily so crazy, and hmm. or maybe it's crazy, but it it might be a good crazy. That's that uh, that helps them be happier and, and kind of reach their dreams. That that would be amazing. That's right. A good crazy. I like that. Um, all right. Well, and thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Flower Labs. As always, I definitely appreciate it. So uh, thanks, Tobin, and thanks, everyone. We'll, we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you, Dave. Thanks.